Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. files have been closed. All files have been locked away in the Pentagon vaults. secretly been given access to these files. This is X-Files Truth. I think that you appreciate that there are extraordinary men and women and Extraordinary moments when history leaps forward on the backs of these individuals. That what can be imagined can be achieved. That you must dare to dream, but that there's no substitute for perseverance and hard work and teamwork because no one gets there alone. And that while we commemorate the the greatness of these events and the individuals who achieve them, we cannot forget the sacrifice of those who make these achievements and leaves possible. I just thought it was a pretty cool keychain. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is Max. X-File number classified. The plot. Mulder is caught by a group of commandos after swimming to shore in Washington. Scully tends to the critically wounded Pendril while the man in black, Garrett, escapes. A.D. Skinner arrives shortly afterwards and tells Scully that the orders to protect Frisch have been countermanded and he is being arrested for providing false testimony. Scully releases Mulder from confinement and tells him that the official explanation for the crash that Frisch and Gonzalez caused the crash by mistakenly vectoring a military fighter craft with the plane and that Frisch has been lying to cover it up. Mulder is skeptical of this latest explanation and thinks that the crashed UFO he found underwater is really what was involved in the crash. This uh, second plane, they say it's a military fighter? It was an F-15 Eagle according to an Air Force spokesman. You believe that story, Scully? I don't know what to believe. You believe I got this from an F-15 Eagle? This looks like radiation burns. Where did you get that? At the second crash site. 
In about 50 feet of water at the bottom of Sacandaga Lake. You found it? Mm, I followed a trail of bubbles down to wreckage that didn't look like anything that might take off from an Air Force base. What was it? What collided with Flight 549 was a UFO, shot down by the military, taking the passenger plane right along with it. Except it can't be proven. Why not? Because they haven't been able to find any physical evidence whatsoever that Flight 549 was involved in a collision. According to whom? Mike Millar, the IIC, the man running the crash investigation. How do you know he's not lying? I don't, except he seems to be the one man who truly wants to figure out what down that plane and who came to me with information he had no reason to share. Scully tells Mulder that Sharon is not really Max's sister, but rather an unemployed aeronautical engineer who met Max in a mental institution. She also tells him that Agent Pendrill died from his wounds. Mulder and Scully visit Max's trailer and watch a tape of him where he talks about finding proof of alien existence. The military recovers the crashed UFO from the lake, including the alien body. The agents visit Millar, whose investigation has been unable to prove or disprove the military's cover story. Mulder tells Millar what he believed really happened. Mulder believes that Max boarded the plane with proof of alien life and that a UFO stopped the plane, abducting him. A military aircraft intercepted the two, however, with orders to attack the UFO. While Max was being returned, the military aircraft intercepted them, causing both the UFO and the plane to crash. All right. There was one man who knew what brought this plane down, and he knew it even before he got on the plane, but he got on anyway. He sat right here in this seat, 13F. His name was Max Fennick. There are a number of possibilities for Max's suspicions, but I believe Max had been followed for some time before he boarded Flight 549, and I believe he was followed onto this plane by someone who wanted whatever it is Max had carried on board with him, the object that ultimately brought down this plane, the cause which has eluded you. And what was this object? Physical proof of the existence of extraterrestrial life and intelligence. The person who followed Max on the plane may have been prepared to kill to obtain this object, its value greater than one human life, greater than the lives of the 134 people on that plane. Whether that plan was executed, we may never know, because Flight 549 was intercepted by a second aircraft, an aircraft which did not appear on the military's or anyone else's radar screen. What the hell is this? Max Fennig knew immediately what this craft was, and that he would not be completing the rest of the flight as scheduled. Max would have recognized immediately all the signs of a classic abduction scenario craft taking control of the plane and all its systems, preparing to take Max. Something happened. Something went terribly wrong. Something unimaginable. Okay. Third aircraft, probably an F-15 Eagle, was given the coordinates for Flight 549. Heading 100 and 29,000 feet. Go ahead. The flight controllers watched the fighter enter Flight 549's airspace on an intercept pattern not knowing what they had set in motion. No way of knowing there was a third craft which was not on their screen. Not knowing that for the next nine minutes, time would stand still on flight 549. We got something. I'm intercept. My God, my God. Mayday, mayday, mayday. You're saying the man sitting in 
C-13F was abducted mid-flight without any depressurization of the cabin, without any effect on the plane. If not for factors unforeseen, I believe Max Fennig would have been abducted and returned to Flight 549 without any loss of life, without a trace. Then what happened? Flight 549 and the alien craft which had taken control of it were intercepted by the military fighter which had been given a specific set of orders to take down the UFO. The missing nine minutes aboard Flight 549, nine minutes that would have been erased from the memories of the 134 passengers on board, would prove to be the final minutes of their lives. Mulder visits Max's trailer again and looks through his mail, finding a luggage claim ticket. Scully visits Sharon, now in a mental institution, who tells Scully that she stole technology from her employer that Max believed was alien. The device was in three parts. One which she had, one that Max brought on the plane, and a third one. Mulder uses the claim ticket to obtain the third device at a New York airport and heads on a plane to return to Washington. Garrett, who is also aboard, sits next to him. Mulder soon realizes who Garrett is and holds him at gunpoint. Garrett does not care, telling Mulder that if he shoots him, the plane will depressurize and he will be able to escape with a parachute he has with him. Mulder imprisons Garrett in the plane bathroom, but Garrett soon emerges with a zip gun and orders him to hand over the device. Suddenly the plane starts shaking and bright lights shine through the windows. When the plane touches down and Mulder gets out, both Garrett and the device are gone and Mulder is missing nine minutes, having no memory of what happened. Mulder, where is he? He's not here. What do you mean? You said you had him on this plane. You said you had what Max Fennig had, the stolen part. What time do you have? 10.56. Would you like to tell me what's going on here, Agent Mulder? I don't think you want to know the answer. Is this man on the plane? I think he got the connecting flight. The agents visit Sharon one last time in Max's trailer, then say goodbye. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for Max. Max is definitely a good episode. I really enjoyed it. We get to see Max again for the last time. I wish we could have kept him around a lot longer. And we see one of the men in black that always appear through the X-Files, Garrett, doing the dirty work for the syndicate, but we don't really know that at this point. It's just implied. We don't get to see the syndicate at all in this one. But this definitely has a really good twist of the third aircraft, which you would never expect. You know, two different crash sites, you only think one crash site, but there's the second one and the third aircraft. So Mulder's way ahead of the game thinking about that when everybody else thinks a plane crash or a plane intercepting another one just involves two planes or two aircraft. But So that was kind of a cool twist. We also get to see Agent Pendrel for one last time, so that's kind of sad. Again, another character they should have kept around, but the X-Files does kind of kill people off sometimes. So I wish Deep Throat could have been around a lot longer. And X, everybody, well, whatever, you know. So it's a pretty good plot with a good twist and everything. 
but it's not one of my all-time favorite X-Files episodes. But it's definitely up there. It's, uh, it's a good mythology compared to other mythology episodes. Probably about an 8 because it's kind of important and it's definitely a good episode. So 8, 8.5. Like I said, I reserve the 9s for the real top ones. Compared to all X-Files episodes, it's still probably in that same range because it's a great episode just as is, even though it's uh, you know the, the sequel to Tempest Fugit. And on the Mythometer, obviously it's a mythology episode. And for the sequelizer, it's kind of funny because being a mythology episode, they all have sequels because it's one long serial. <laughs> but because Max is dead, it's almost like this one doesn't have a sequel or would have a low percent potential for a sequel. So it's kind of funny. I don't even know how to rank it. It doesn't have potential for a sequel with Max, but it definitely has potential for a sequel because of the alien technology and everything. So let's call it a high and a low potential. <laughs> but that's all I have for Max. And I haven't heard the other agent's files yet. So I'm gonna go do that. And now we can head down to the chem lab to see what Agent Angela has to say about the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Max. song is that remembered at random serpenting through fatty coils emerging some other thought it's thinking this light shines above the houses on the ground this illumination visited upon the whole land on martel chem lab analysis hello agents max the second episode of this two-parter doesn't have the same kind of adorable Mulder and Scully moments as her birthday scene in the previous one, though that probably would have been asking a lot. There are a few good ones, though, especially ones centered around the present he gave her. In the episode's opening, Mulder's caught by the military during a certain nighttime diving search, and Scully's back at the bar where there's been a shooting, which has sadly ended up costing Agent Pendrill his life. Wrong place, wrong time for him. Scully has a definite human, compassionate side that sometimes isn't that easy to see, underneath her cool facade, but it's there, and it's on display as she expresses remorse for not even knowing his first name while he was still alive. Even if she promises him he's not going to die, Scully gets an unfortunate reminder of her cancer, and possibly her own shortened life. Scully finds out Mulder's been arrested and placed in a military jail, and he has one of his typical remarks when she goes to get him. Bring me from the joint. I came to talk to you. About what? The two of them debate the military's actual role in the plane crash, and Scully admits she doesn't know what to believe anymore. She also notices radiation burns on Mulder's forehead, briefly examining them and looking concerned. Somewhat surprisingly, Mulder squeezes her shoulder reassuringly when she tells him Agent Pendrel's dead. They're both obviously saddened and regretful at people dying for the truth, or for the lies. Great way of putting it, Scully. Mulder and Scully then go through the now-departed Max Finnegg's trailer slash rolling NICAP headquarters, and Scully comments that she thinks Mulder and Max were kindred spirits in some strange way, which I've always found somewhat funny and accurate. 
think you were actually kindred spirits in some deep, strange way. What do you mean? Men with Spartan lives, simple in their creature comforts, if only to allow for the complexity of their passions. As they listen to Max's video about the military's use of alien technology, the shady characters in question are recovering victims and covering up evidence at the plane crash site. This ending with a lie and a cover-up, even as Mulder and Scully show up and point out the facts that are still a matter of speculation. The skeptic and the believer are in agreement here, as far as the military and government lying and covering up what really happened to Flight 549. Mulder recounts what he believes happened, with Max's abduction aboard the plane. Mulder and Scully, of course, get nowhere with, with this story. As Scully does point out, it's a house of cards built on a shaky foundation. Mulder mentions he'd go with Scully to see Sharon at the mental institution, but he jokes he's afraid they'd lock him up. And they both smile a little at that, which I find pretty damn cute. Anyway, Mulder gets the container carrying what Max had on the flight, as Scully keeps telling him not to handle it. He gets a look at it, though, through airport security, but it's still unclear exactly what this thing is. Mulder boards a flight with the object, seemingly walking the same path Max did, including getting threatened. He manages to block Pendrell's killer in the plane's bathroom before getting Scully on the phone. Unfortunately, the guy breaks loose and holds Mulder at gunpoint until he gives up the knapsack. Scully and Skinner get there, just as disaster is averted, though there's still some lost time. In the ending scene, Mulder and Scully are back watching more of Max's video with Sharon, and then comes my favorite part of this episode. Scully was thinking about how what can be imagined can be achieved with teamwork, because no one gets there alone inspired by the keychain that Mulder gave her for her birthday. Even though Mulder simply thought it was a cool keychain, I've always thought they were in agreement on this. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence. With X 4.18 Max. Original air date March 23rd, 1997. Written by Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz. Directed by Kim Manners. What are these people dying for? Is it for the truth or for the lies? Max is a two-part episode with the plot continuing from the previous episode, Tempest Fugate. Max and Agent Pendrel are dead, the man in black, a.k.a. the Mustache Man, has escaped, and Mulder is caught by a group of commandos after swimming to shore. At the conclusion of this two-parter, Mulder is missing nine minutes, having no memory of what happened. Post-alien abduction, eventually the abductors will return the abductees to terra firmer or usually to exactly the same location and circumstances they were in before being taken. 
Terra firma is a Latin phrase meaning solid earth, from terra meaning earth and firma meaning solid. The phrase refers to the dry land mass on the earth's surface and is used to differentiate from the sea or air. Usually explicit memories of the abduction experience will not be present and the abductee will only realize they have experienced missing time upon checking a timepiece. Sometimes the alleged abductors appear to make mistakes when returning their captives. Famed UFO researcher Bud Hopkins has joked about the cosmic application of Murphy's Law in response to this observation. Hopkins has estimated that these errors accompany 4-5% of abduction reports. One type of common apparent mistake made by the abductors is failing to return the experiencer to the same spot that they were taken from initially. This can be as simple as a different room in the same house, or abductees can even find themselves outside and all the doors of the house are locked from the inside. Another common and amusing error is putting the abductee's clothes, such as pajamas, on backwards. From Missing Time, UFO Alien Abductions by James Hewson. Missing time is a contentious occurrence told by some individuals in junction with close encounters amid UFOs and alien abduction phenomena. The expression missing time concerns a void in conscious recollection recounting a precise period in time. The void can last from a number of minutes to a couple of days in length. The recollection of what took place during the missing time is frequently recovered by way of hypnosis or in the course of dreaming. Missing time is contentious in that, aside from skepticism and UFO events, it is closely aligned to other disputed matters such as regained memories and hypnotic suggestion. Meaning that the recollection of the occurrence, actual or imagined, is so disturbing that the mind suppresses it. Time can additionally be lost without an actual abduction. There have been several cases of persons who testify that they have experienced missing time just by being in the close proximity of a UFO craft. This phenomenon could be potentially be defined through physics given Einstein's theory of relativity recounts that time is relative and that time travels slower in the company of a gravitational field. It has been shown in many UFO sightings that UFO crafts may possess a strong gravitational field and may possibly make time manipulation conceivable for close observers. Missing time is regularly stated as a manifestation of a multiple personality disorder. An event similar to missing time can take place while hearing binaural noises intended to cause altered states of awareness. One of the most infamous cases of missing time comes from Betty and Barney Hill, who was an American married couple who ascended to cult status after they alleged to have been abducted by aliens over two days on September 19th and 20th, 1961. The couple's tale, frequently dubbed the Hill abduction and sometimes the Zeta Reticuli event, was that they were casualties of an alleged UFO kidnap, or more common, known as an alien abduction. This was the first public account of an alien abduction, which was subsequently converted into the best-selling 1966 publication called The Interrupted Journey. At nightfall on September 19, 1961, the couple were driving back to Portsmouth from a holiday in upstate New York, including stopovers at Ontario and Quebec. South of Groveton, New Hampshire, they are said to have watched a bright spot of light in the air. At first, they thought that they were watching a shooting star, only it ascended and halted approaching the gibbous moon. Betty, whose sister had disclosed to her about encountering a flying saucer sighting a number of years previously, observed the entity by way of binoculars as it traveled across the surface of the moon emitting multicolored lights. Close to the location of Indian Head, the enormous craft quickly plummeted toward the hill's car, 
leading to Barney to halt right away in the middle of the highway. The craft allegedly descended to roughly 70 to 100 feet above the vehicle and filled the whole field of the windscreen through which Betty was watching. Employing the binoculars, Barney alleged to have viewed 8 to 11 alien figures who were gazing out of the UFO's openings, seeming to watch them. The one outstanding figure continued to appear to look at Barney and imparted the message to him, Stay where you are and keep looking. Missing Time November 25, 1961, saw the couple interviewed at length by NICAP representatives C.D. Jackson and Robert E. Homan. Having studied a previous report on the incident, Jackson and Homan asked many questions for the Hills. One of their principal queries was about the length of the trip. Neither Webb nor the Hills had noticed that, though the drive should have taken around four hours, they did not emerge at their residence until seven hours following their departure. When Homan and Jackson informed this disparity to the Hills, the pair were astonished, having no explanation for the missing three hours. The report documented that, despite all their attempts, the Hills could not recall anything of the 35-mile stretch between Indian Head and Ashland. This is just one documented case of missing time which defies explanation, and it is surprising how many cases of this strange phenomenon have been recorded. Whether what individuals are experiencing is indeed connected to alien spacecrafts or a psychological experience continues to evade rational explanation. For more on this type of event, you may also see Missing Time, a documented study of UFO abductions by Bud Hopkins. Bud Hopkins, with the help of psychologist Aphrodite Clammer and other doctors, has investigated in depth 19 cases of UFO abductions over the past five years. These include two registered nurses, a golf pro, a Wall Street executive, a painter, a news media writer, a retired public school principal, an insurance underwriter, and a college instructor. People from America and abroad, without knowledge of each other and before being put under hypnosis, without any recollection of the actual abductions. Some have consciously remembered seeing the UFOs, but none has remembered being taken aboard. Mr. Hopkins writes at length about seven of the cases. Enough similarities exist in the reports, about 80% of the details are identical in all experiences, to make coincidence impossible. These individuals are not kooks or madmen, they are average people. Questions arise as to why each of them has a small scar on his or her body, and why, when asked to draw the creatures they had seen, the results were astonishingly alike. Physician and abductor researcher John G. Miller sees significance in the reason a person would come to see themselves as being a victim of the abduction phenomenon. He terms the insight or development leading to this shift in identity from non-abductee to abductee the realization event. The realization event is often a single memorable experience, but Miller reports that not all abductees experience it as a distinct episode. Either way, the realization event can be thought of as the clinical horizon of the abduction experience, or when it first started. For now, I'd say this case is open. So the final word on Max, I'd go with you, but I'm, I'm afraid they'd lock me up.
What's going on out there? What's out there for Max? First review this time around comes from thedailydrew.com. It says, The resolution of yesterday's cliffhanger is a bit disappointing. After, after discovering the downed spacecraft and seeing dead alien bodies within, Mulder is suddenly surrounded by a bright light, the same sort of light that is routinely seen in depictions of alien abductions throughout the series, and within yesterday's episode itself. Instead, it's just a bunch of military frogmen trying to chase Mulder away from the scene. This episode also tries to wring some drama from the death of Agent Pendrell. I'm not sure I've mentioned him before because there never seems to be any reason to. Including this episode, he's appeared in a total of nine episodes since being introduced in last season's Nisei. His only role seems to be to provide some thin comic relief relating to his rather juvenile crush on Scully. Don't get me wrong, I sympathize with him. Scully is a remarkable woman, and rather easy on the eyes if it's not too crass to say so. Still, this character never really went anywhere, and it's a bit much to suddenly ask me to care about him. On the other hand, the script goes way out of its way to establish that even Mulder and Scully never learned his first name. Scully's ashamed of this, and this makes a nice point that she, and by extension we, paid too little attention to this man. Early in the episode, Mulder and Scully watch a video recorded by Max Fennig prior to his death. This is a nice way to get Max into the story, despite the fact that he was killed off at the start of the last episode. In the video, Max describes it as the story of his life, but this episode is actually the story of his death. While I gave the last episode a lot of credit for following the evidence in a tight, logical progression, Mulder's big info dump in this episode is based on a lot of sketchy reasoning. But that's okay, the Mulder rule is in full effect, and the narrative Mulder lays out, depicted for our benefit through flashbacks, fits the facts. But if you think carefully about what's being described, you can see some remarkable coincidences at work. Max Fenning was en route to give Mulder tangible evidence of the existence of extraterrestrials in the form of an alien artifact of some kind. There was an assassin on the plane with Fennec who planned to kill him. It just so happens that the aliens decided to abduct Max from the plane, and we don't know why. Presumably someone on the ground was aware of this, and the military intercepted and shot down the alien aircraft in mid-abduction, which caused the plane crash. This holds together well enough, certainly, but the underlying mysteries are never addressed. I suppose that's fair enough, really. So the episode turns to Mulder's efforts to track down the alien artifact Max died to bring him. This is more typical fare for this series, and it unfolds rather perfunctorily. Naturally, Mulder loses the artifact, first to the assassin who is involved in the conspiracy, and then to the aliens themselves who abduct the assassin. So he finishes the episode empty-handed, as we knew he must. In fairness, I have to mention that Scully suffers a nosebleed in this episode, a not-too-subtle reminder of Scully's ongoing struggle against her cancer. The script draws attention to this through the concerns of assistant director Skinner, but this is unnecessary and actually a bit clumsy. It's good enough to remind us that Scully's life is still at serious risk, as she doesn't have all the time in the world. So what do I think? I don't know, I always liked Agent Pendrell, and I thought his crush on Scully was sweet, if a little bit pitiful for being totally unrequited. Who could blame the guy? It was also sweetly sad that she felt guilty for never knowing his first name while he was alive. As for the rest of the review, I did enjoy the reviewer's description of the Mulder rule, which is kind of funny and pretty spot on. Second review I picked is posted on Musings of an X-File. It reads in part, Here's the thing about this episode. It's hard to believe our military is a match for beings who can literally stop time. 
It's partially because of this that I can't help feeling there should be something more at stake here than simply wimpy aliens trying unsuccessfully to recover technology that the mean old humans stole. And despite my best efforts to take myself back to a season one mentality where conspiracies were just conspiracies unto themselves and the cigarette smoking man had nothing to do with them, conspiracies where some opaque and sinister organization called the military was solely responsible for the inscrutable reasons, it still feels as though the aliens must be holding back their wrath as part of some grander purpose that ties into the plans of the now conspicuously AWOL syndicate. Yet somehow, with the military handling the cover-up so poorly that even the TSA can see through it, it's hard to believe that the wise old men of the Syndicate are pulling the strings on this one. For the first time since Memento Mori, Scully's cancer comes back as a plot point. Blink and you'll miss it, because her brief nosebleed is barely a point of reference. It's only there to remind us that they haven't forgotten. Yes, she still has cancer. No, we're not ready to do anything about it yet. I'm actually quite glad they didn't fall into the emotional trap of milking Scully's cancer to death. Then again, moments like this feel a little awkward since Scully et al. have been acting as though her cancer didn't exist for the past two episodes. And after this, we'll again ignore it for another two. Possibly it would have been smoother if Scully's cancer hadn't stopped and started in fits and spurts. Perhaps the mention of a doctor or medication here and there? I'm happy she wasn't a chronic victim, but because of Out of the Blue, these reminders make her cancers seem more like an incidental fact. Then again, having the cancer be a constant presence would have been irritating to the extreme. Oh, I don't know what I want. I'm just looking for a happy medium. So what do I think? Yeah, good point that the writing did often put Scully's cancer in a distant background. But when you think about it, she's been diving into her work as a way of coping with it in some ways. It's what she needed to do. So in a way, it makes a lot of sense that a more emotional angle wasn't taken with it. As always, drop by our show notes page for links to both of these reviews. My final word on Max? I think you should consider yourself the sole curator of the Max Finnick Rolling Multimedia Library and Archive, and you should probably get tax-exempt status as soon as you can. This stuff could be worth something someday. Character profiles. But these aren't humans, Scully. Profiles in character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile, Frank Spotnitz. Frank Spotnitz was born November 17, 1960, and is an American television writer and producer and chief executive of Big Light Productions Limited. Frank is best known for his work on the X-Files television series and for creating the Amazon drama series The Man in the High Castle. Award-winning American writer and producer Frank Spotnitz is chief executive of Big Light Productions, a London-based production company which creates and oversees a diverse slate of international television series including drama, comedy, and documentaries. Spotnitz is currently writing and executive producing the second season Amazon drama series The Man in the High Castle based on the classic alternative history novel by Philip K. Dick. It is a co-production between Big Light, Scott Free Productions, Headline Pictures, and Electric Shepherd Productions. 
The first series was released in November 2015 and quickly became the most streamed original drama series in Amazon's history. The Los Angeles Times described the pilot as provocative and smartly adapted by the X-Files' Frank Spotnitz. The Daily Telegraph said it was absorbing and Wired called it must-see viewing. Entertainment Weekly said it was engrossing and a triumph in world-building cheering. The man in the high castle is king. Spotnitz executive produced and wrote episodes of Studio Canal slash Tandem's international thriller Crossing Lines, which recently wrapped shooting season three in Europe with Gorn Wiesnick, Elizabeth Mitchell, and Donald Sutherland. In 2012, Spotnitz created, wrote, and executive produced the international spy drama series Hunted for BBC One and HBO Cinemax starring Melissa George. His additional writing and producing credits include counterterrorism drama series Strike Back, action series Transporter the Series, ABC's mystery series Night Stalker with Stuart Townsend and Gabrielle Union, Michael Mann's crime series Robbery Homicide Division, Unconventional Heroes comedy drama The Lone Gunman, sci-fi drama Harsh Realm, and crime thriller Millennium. In 2006, Spotnitz co-wrote and created, with Vince Gilligan, a pilot for Spike TV called Amped, or A-M-P-E-D. He also wrote three comic books for Wildstorm based on the X-Files. Joining the X-Files as a writer in 1994, Spotnitz quickly became involved not only in developing the series' standalone episodes, but its elaborate mythology storyline, dealing with government conspiracy and aliens. Spotnitz served on the X-Files for eight of its nine seasons. He directed two episodes and wrote or co-wrote more than 40 installments of the series, including the Emmy-nominated Memento Mori with Chris Carter, Vince Gilligan, and John Scheiben in 1997. He served four years as executive producer and three years as president of Chris Carter's 1013 Productions. He was a producer and co-writer of both X-Files feature films, Fight the Future and I Want to Believe. Spotnitz shares three Golden Globes for Best Dramatic Series and a Peabody Award for his work on the X-Files. He was also nominated for an Emmy Award for writing and three times for Outstanding Drama Series. In 2013, Spotnitz founded Big Light Productions Limited, under whose banner he has produced Transporter the Series, Crossing Lines, and The Man in the High Castle. Big Light has since become one of the fastest-growing independent production companies in Europe. Born in Japan, Spotnitz received a BA in English Literature from UCLA and an MFA in Screenwriting from the American Film Institute. He began his career as a newspaper and magazine writer, working for the Associated Press, United Press International, and Entertainment Weekly, among other media. Spotnitz lives in Paris with his wife, children, two dogs, and a ferret. On the end of the TV series The X-Files, Spotnitz said, You can't get the truth. You can't. There's a larger truth, though, that you can't harness the forces of the cosmos, but you may find somebody else. You may find another human being. That may be kind of corny and all that, but that's really it. Love is the only truth we can hope to know as human beings. That's what Mulder and Scully found after nine years. And that's a lot. On The X-Files, Spotnet served as an executive producer on 83 episodes, a co-producer on 24 episodes, and a co-executive producer on 20 episodes. The Lone Gunman, he was an executive producer of 13 episodes... For Harsh Realm, he was an executive producer on nine episodes. 
And for Millennium, he was a co-executive producer on 22 episodes and a co-producer on also 22 episodes. Checked your email? I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Angela. Hey everyone. This time around, I just saw we have a new blog following us on our website. It's called Leash Says, and the blogger has written a pretty entertaining post on the X Files. I'm just going to read you a few of the highlights of it. It's called How to Survive Binge Watching a Show That Came Out Years Ago The X Files. On February 14, 2016, I embarked on a life-changing journey that required bravery, perseverance, and commitment. It was on that date that I decided to power through 212 hours of the X-Files. Unsure I had the stamina, I prepared carefully, making important calculations and predictions. Although I anticipated a six-month turnover, on April 25th, just two months and 11 days after setting out, I realized my goal. Averaging 20 plus hours of the show per week, many may be questioning, did you have a life during this time? The answer is yes. I maintained a robust, social, and healthy lifestyle during my journey, and you can too. Here are important life-saving tips to binge-watching The X-Files without dying. Number one, pull your friends. Is the show really worth emotionally investing in? The answer in this case is unanimous as a yes. Savor the pilot. You have only one chance to enjoy it all for the first time. This is so true. I really agree with that. Understand that a lot of people are going to suggest other shows during this time. Do not give in. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Show them your new X-Files ring so they know you're committed. Try to remind yourself that you are not on the show. You may find yourself walking down the street looking for the monster of the week, shouting to your friends that the truth is out there. But just remember so are lies. And finally, my personal favorite part of this post, ship all over the place. Read good fanfic, subscribe to the subreddit, scream at the TV when Scully and Mulder should have kissed but didn't. Damn B. Pretend you are Mulder. Anyway, the rest of this post is uh, just as cool and definitely worth a read, so I'll be sticking the link to it on the show notes page too. If you've been enjoying X-Files Truth, we'd love it if you'd leave us a short review or a star rating on iTunes. That helps us the most. And if you haven't already, be sure to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash X-Files Truth Podcast, and follow us on Twitter at X-Files underscore Truth. And if you've got anything X-Files to say and you'd like your voice heard on the show, you can send us an email at xfilestruth at live.com. The truth is still out there, people. Go find it.
Next time on X-Files Truth. A technologically advanced rapid freezing compound is the focal point of three deaths, one of which is predicted by an elderly man whose ability to foresee the future is explained, according to Mulder, in Scully's graduate thesis. Unmarked helicopters hovering up. They said it was a weather balloon. 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 That closes the file for Max. Remember, if you're interested in the music that we used between the segments, we always put that at the website, xfilestruth.com. And as always, we're open for your suggestions and everything. xfilestruth.live.com is the email. But the best thing you could do for us is just leave a review at iTunes. That helps us the most. That about does it for this month. We will see you next month for Synchrony. Did you like that one, puppies? I made this. 20th century fox. It's a beach jet, stupid. But, but nobody ever finds out about it. I mean, there, there are scientists in Finland right now who say that they have detected anti-gravity over the surface of a, a spinning superconducting disk. <laughs> Technology that is supposedly 20 or 30 years down the road, like over unity energy. Um, massless displacement current from cold fusion that we need for space travel. I know, thanks to my inside sources, that this technology, in fact, exists. I've seen military aircraft that use it hovering right over my trailer. Why is the U.S. government keeping all this a secret? I intend to expose these facts to the people. I mean, I'm just one man. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.